for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. This is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Mona Hannah Atisha, the doctor who helped discover the lead in the water in Flint. These facts, these numbers in my research, these numbers were children. A child that I literally had taken an oath as a pediatrician to protect. So we fought back. We fought back with more science. We also joined on the news with Brittany Clinton Sam as usual. Clint is not with us as a part of the recording, but you will hear his voice shortly because he has news like we all do. And the message for this week, this week I'm actually traveling in Germany. I am visiting uh, prisons and jails here to to see how other uh, countries think about incarceration. And it's been interesting. You know, what I will say is that most prisons sort of still look like prisons. But the other thing is that I've been reminded that sometimes we have to take ourselves out of the situation that we're normally in to be able to think about uh, possibilities. So here, for instance, like a life sentence is maximum 15 years and then so when we think about life in America, a life sentence is like light, you know, it's like a long time, 40, 50 years for some people, 60 years, you can get these huge long sentences here, you did, that's just not possible. So but the message this week is that sometimes we don't even realize that the zones that we're in are comfort zones, that part of what it means to be a comfort zone is not only that you sort of feel comfortable, that's a part of it. But comfort zones are also places where like the way we think about the world isn't challenged. And part of this trip in Germany with the Vera Institute has been about being in places that just like push and challenge the way that I think about incarceration and that like forces me to ask different questions, to see things differently and to own that there are many ways to address issues of conflict in community. Yeah, that's it. Let's go. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint. And last week, something that might have slid under the radar is that the Washington State Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment actually violates that state constitution. They said that the death penalty is imposed in a, quote, unlawfully and racially biased manner. In the process, it converted all death sentences to life imprisonment and then made it so that no one could be sentenced to death in the future. Importantly, this court's ruling is unanimous and can't be reversed by the Supreme Court. Mark Joseph Stone at Slate has been doing some particularly good reporting on this, and he kind of broke down what it means and how we got here. And so what's fascinating is that in 2012, the court upheld the death penalty, noting that it had seen, quote, no evidence that racial discrimination pervades the imposition of capital punishment in the state of Washington. After that ruling, a death row inmate commissioned a study by Catherine Beckett, who's a sociologist at the University of Washington, to analyze the issue. What Beckett found is fascinating. She found that capital punishment, as it's practiced in Washington state, is deeply infected with racism. According to her report, black defendants were four and a half times more likely to be sentenced to death than similarly situated white defendants. Additionally, she found that prosecutors are more likely to seek the death penalty in counties with larger black populations. Beckett's conclusions were clear and forthright. In the state of Washington, black offenders were at greater risk of execution than white offenders who committed pretty much an identical crime. An additional factor to consider is that in Washington, 
most prosecutors in the state have pretty much stopped seeking the death penalty. So all current capital sentences arise from really just six of Washington's 39 counties, which means that both race and place are playing a huge role in whether someone gets the death penalty or not. The court called this, quote, random and capricious in its application of the ultimate punishment. And according to the Constitution of Washington, this is unconstitutional. So we've spoken many times before about all the ways that the death penalty is wrong because of its racial disparities, its economic cost with regard to all of the appeals that the cases go through, the fact that the social science shows that it doesn't actually serve as a deterrent to crime, the amount of people who have been killed who have mental health issues, and the fact that a study in 2014 found that 4% of people sentenced to death are actually innocent. But beyond that, the question that we have to continue to ask ourselves is, does the government have the right to take someone's life? Does the government have the right to murder someone with our tax dollars and in our name? Clearly, I think the answer is no. And I think more and more states are coming to realize that as well. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-E-Y on Twitter. As you all know by now, uh, Clint isn't with us on this part of the news, but you've already heard his news by now. And, you know, we love Clint. Miss you, Clint. Hope that you're well. Did you all hear about what Holder had to say this week? Finally, it seems like the Democrats have some fight in them. So that is promising because it seems like we've just been sitting down uh, while people beat us up. I mean, for those who didn't hear, he said, when they go low, we kick them. Ain't no going high. <laughs> ain't no, ain't no, you know, he was like, I'm going to meet you exactly where you are and I'm going to, I'm going to kick you, um, which, you know, is I'm sure he was being a bit hyperbolic in terms of the actual gesture. Um, but I think his point is that the rules are just very, very different than they were even in 2016. I'll be honest, I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it. I understand it, and I believe in having fight. I don't know if I believe in kicking people, but it is. it at least gives us um, multiple options to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when they go low, we go high. Uh, I think captured the 2016 sentiment well, and now... You know, two years later, uh, as you said, Brittany, the rules have changed. I think we've seen the Republicans uh, go low so many times. We're tired of going high, and I think we need a different approach. I don't know if it's to kick them, but something different. I'm also reminded of uh, this sort of approach of sort of laying down and letting the Republicans go low and and, and kick us uh, seems to be on full display in the Senate, where uh, it appears Chuck Schumer has made a deal with the Republicans to allow uh, them to confirm, like, I think it's 15 federal judges uh, so that they can go home on break and campaign in some of the vulnerable states. So, like, I I think this stuff still continues where we need to stand up and not allow Republicans to do whatever they want. And it also is this reminder that sometimes you can take the high ground to oblivion, right? We are totally high grounded on the left and, like, losing and that isn't a strategy either. So I don't think that like this direct confrontation has to be malicious. I don't think that we have to lose our morals in the process, but it is like, we got to fight back with this stuff that like today, everybody's news sort of talks about big long lasting things, but the stuff that Trump is doing is so consequential that it'll take us a generation to undo it. And we can't just like sit by and like let it happen because of some random call for civility. 
And, you know, I think what's really important is that, to the point that you made, Dere, we don't have to lose our morals in the process because, quite frankly, the truth should anger everybody. So all we're actually talking about is being bold enough to continue to tell the truth um, and being bold enough to make sure that we're not just telling the truth in our echo chambers, but that we're actually telling the truth to the people that need to hear it most. Um, There are so many ways in which this administration is not benefiting the very people that voted for him. There are obviously ways in which it is. But those are folks that need to hear the truth as well. And I don't necessarily think that having some fight in us means that we have to become the thing that we are fighting. I think that what it can mean is that we are ever as bold, that we are ever as clear on, you know, using everything to our advantage, just like the other side does to make sure that not only is the truth being told, but that we can govern according to it. So speaking about things that the Trump administration is doing that'll take a long time to undo, let's talk about that tax cut that passed last year. So an article from the New York Times is called White Americans Gain the Most from Trump's Tax Cuts. The Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy did an analysis of who benefited from the tax cut and who did not. Uh, Now, mind you, the reason that we have a trillion-dollar deficit is because of this tax cut. Uh, So a lot of services that people depend upon are in jeopardy now because the government can't pay for much uh, because it lost a lot of revenue giving money away to predominantly wealthy people. And it turns out uh, giving away that money to disproportionately white people as well. So white Americans earn 77% of total income in the United States. So we've talked about systemic barriers to earning income, to getting employment, to the wage gap, not only by race and also by gender. Uh, So 77% of total income in the United States, white Americans. Uh, 80% of the benefits of the tax cut went to white Americans. Black Americans, despite earning 6% of the nation's income, only got 5% of the benefits of the tax cut. Latinx communities, despite earning 8% of the nation's income, only got 7% of the benefits of the tax cut. Altogether, uh, the report estimates that whites will get $218 billion in tax cut this year as a result of the law. Black and Latinx Americans will get only $32 billion compared to that. So they break this data down further at the individual level and show that uh, the average white American got about $2,000, and the average black American only got $840 from the tax cut. So mind you, these things are considered benefits, but they also come with cuts on the other side of programs, and we've seen how this administration has tried to cut a range of uh, services, make it harder to get access to public benefits, uh, and shifted money from things like Head Start, which disproportionately helped low-income kids, kids of color, uh, into things like putting kids of color in cages. So this is sort of the Trump administration, the way that they're distributing the resources, doing it in a way where the benefits disproportionately accrue to white and wealthy Americans and where the costs disproportionately accrue to people of color. The last thing that's interesting here is that even among the super wealthy, so often we talk about this tax cut benefiting the super wealthy, which it did, but not everybody in the super wealthy benefited the same. And in fact, in the top 1% of income earners, whites earned $52,000 from the tax cut on average compared to $20,000 for Latinx in the top 1% and $19,000 for black Americans in the top 1%. So even among the super wealthy, white people benefited more. 
Racism is like, I don't care how rich you are, I'm still going to get you one way or the other. (laughs) This is why we always say that oppression, intersectional oppression, cannot be separated and that policies that address economics alone are not enough to create equity. This is exactly why. And, you know, of course, when you look at people who are outside of the 1% uh, of wage earners and wealth holders, we know that the tax benefits vary in part because Black and Latinx people are simply earning less and have less wealth than white people do. And yet we still have to recognize that like taxes should be set up in such a way that the people who are already benefiting from the economic policies of society should not also then be benefiting from tax policy, right? So this is what folks mean when they say the rich get richer and the poor get poorer over and over and over again. When you have one advantage, it's easier to access another advantage and another advantage and another advantage. When you make more money, you can afford the kind of financial advising that helps you to take greatest advantage of tax codes that are already written to benefit people like you and so on and so forth. So this is how the cycle continues. This is how the snowball continues to grow. But most certainly, um, it's important that these numbers are out there. The question is, is Congress actually going to do anything about it? Chances are highly unlikely. (laughs) Now, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was uh, the way that the tax bill privileges the ultra-rich within uh, the white community. So white people in general fare better from the tax bill. And wealthy people fare in general, but the wealthiest people actually fare the best. And and I hadn't thought about what this means with race until I read the report. And the thing that I thought was most surprising that I just like didn't know was about the way it privileges how wealth is earned. So what the report shows is that immigrants and people from less affluent backgrounds who become rich are more likely to have fortunes rooted in income from work. But the law further entrenches tax advantages favoring income from investments and also expands tax exemptions on estates, inheritances, and gifts. What the researcher says is that the bill was designed to benefit wealth over work. And like that was interesting to me because so much of the talking point on the right is that like, you know, people work hard and that's how they accrue wealth. And, you know, if you work hard, and it's like, Actually, this is just privileging people who know how to play the wealth game in a certain way that is heavily white in the way that it's manifesting in the system. And like that was even more insidious, like not only the disparity so great, but even when people do accrue wealth, they can't benefit from it unless they play a specific game. The second, and Sam hinted on this too, is that the deficit is ballooning and that just seems like not to be, a, a, I don't know, a public conversation right now because so much is happening with this administration. But whoever the next president is, is going to have to deal with what this deficit looks like. And I hope that we have Congress so that it doesn't lead to just like a slashing of every social program that we have out there. But the deficit is reaching an all time high. And that's really scary to think about that. And the third is, you know, people don't think about this tax cut as government assistance to white people. But it is like, you know, we frame government assistance as this thing that only people of color and poor people receive. But the tax cut is literally the government like giving money to white people in droves in a way we're not doing to anybody else and disproportionately by design. And if that's not government assistance, I don't know what is. Don't go anywhere. More Politics of the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo. So you all know that on this podcast, we do our very best to either talk about the news that is going under or unreported or to talk about popular news items, but make sure that we're discussing how it affects um, people of color and people from marginalized communities very differently than the way it is being reported. One of the things I didn't know until the Washington Post reported it is that on January 23rd of 2017, so right at the beginning of this administration, Trump signed an executive order to deny U.S. assistance to any foreign-based organization that quote, performs, promotes, or offers information on abortion. So essentially, that's the U.S. gag rule extended globally. Here's why that matters. There are ways in which previous Republican presidents had extended that global gag rule in what was called the Mexico City policy. But under previous administrations, that policy put about $600 million of overseas funding at risk because it limited itself only to funding that was being supplied to family planning, right? So it was only family planning organizations across the world that were being affected. This executive order, however, actually extends to the entire $8.8 billion of annual U.S. global health aid. So that's not just organizations that are working on family planning around the world. That is also money that is being used to fight the global AIDS epidemic, malaria, and other illnesses that are striking people all across the world. Now, I think it's critically important to say that there are organizations that do not rely on U.S. foreign aid and that do not rely on any kind of 
of U.S. capacity or resources at all to operate and to fight these fights across the world. But we also know that $8.8 billion is nothing to balk at. And there are organizations doing good work that rely on that funding. USAID is convinced that funding is not going to change. However, this executive order absolutely puts that funding at risk. And even if money is shifted from one organization to another organization, that can take days, weeks, even months to make that happen. And so people will go without critical services. I also think it's really important, before I open it up to you all, to share exactly why the religious right in this country gathered around the issue of abortion rights in the first place. Because that kind of lobbying, that kind of advocacy is exactly what got us to the gag rule and the point where we are right now, not just domestically, but globally. Um, The Christian right actually coalesced around supporting racial discrimination in schools. There were cases that were being fought in courts all across this country that the religious right saw as an opportunity to gather what they decided to call the moral majority. That moral majority was created by people like the folks who co-founded the Heritage Foundation by people like Jerry Falwell, who wanted to coalesce people around the idea that schools, just like communities and neighborhoods and other institutions, should be able to be whites only, and that that was a way of life and a lifestyle um, true to their American values. In the 1970s, when they had to build their base, not just of a moral majority leadership, as they called it, but moral majority grassroots, the cause that they decided to rally around was abortion. So when Roe became the law of the land in 1974, this was an opportunity for them to gather those grassroots and bring them into, again, what they were calling the moral majority and continue to rally as the conservative right. Uh, And so If folks who were committed to racial segregation are the same folks who are committed to being anti-abortion, that should make you question the root of policies like the gag rule. Yeah, Brittany, I think that's really important historical context because we often have this sort of debate in our political discourse about, you know, are Republicans and sort of the conservative movement, is it inherently racist or uh, is it a group of people who just happen to have the same political allegiances as the racists, but they're separate and they're not all racist and the movement isn't racist and it's just, you know, there just happen to be, you know, a few bad apple racists in a larger conservative movement that cares about religious freedom and all of these other things. But when you look historically, as you mentioned, Brittany, like this actually, the coalition that has emerged and strengthened and is now in power, like is a direct response to efforts to desegregate schools, efforts to desegregate communities, efforts to combat the Jim Crow South, right? And like that is what they organized originally around and have have been organizing around ever since in so many different contexts. And the issue of abortion sort of came in as a political strategy for them to organize more people behind that coalition. The other thing that's interesting about this uh, is the the ways in which the Trump administration has sought to explain away the impact, the potential harm that this could do. And what, one of the things that they actually said uh, was that, you know, it, if organizations are going to lose funding that, you know, either provide abortions or refer people to organizations that provide abortions, that there'll be other organizations that could always step in and receive that funding and that populations won't be impacted because those other organizations will sort of fill that that need. Uh, but when you read this article, you know, it's pretty clear that in many countries, you know, they in particular highlight Madagascar, 
And in many countries, you know, there's just not another organization that can easily step in. Uh, there's not, you know, there might be only one organization in a rural area uh, in Madagascar that's able to provide care and that provides uh, abortions or refers people uh, to get abortions and that also provides a range of other services. Uh, and if you cut funding to that one organization, there's just not another organization around that can meet that need and people just go without those resources. So, you know, I don't know if it is, I mean, I assume it's actually intentional, like they just don't care in this administration, but it could also, their excuse relies on people just not fundamentally understanding, you know, what the needs are on the ground and assuming that, you know, there'll always be somewhere else uh, that people can go when often there isn't. Now, what I didn't know um, was that this rule was created by President Reagan, was removed under Bill Clinton, was reinstated under Bush, and was removed again by Obama, and then reinstated by Trump in his first week. Like, I had no clue that this was like being yo-yoed back and forth by the president's. The other thing is that federal funding for abortion is already barred by U.S. law. Uh, what this does is that it makes it illegal, essentially, to even talk about abortion. And, like, you know, when you think about what happens when you go to your healthcare provider, any healthcare provider, and they literally just can't even talk to you about the options, like, forget being able to provide the option, but just like telling you, like, this is probably the best thing for you medically. That's wild. That, that we would allow that to happen with our funding just is really dangerous. And, you know, Brittany, I hadn't, I didn't know this was a thing again. Like, I, so I'm happy that we, we brought it up on the news because it was like, I read about it and I was like, this is sort of wild. I also, I still think it's wild that it was like yo-yoed back and forth. The last thing I'll say is that it's anticipated that the impact of these gag orders or gag order like this, because we've seen it before, will have a disproportionate impact on LGBT communities, uh, communities that are particularly vulnerable here and abroad uh, because of the lack of just honest healthcare that people have. And like, as we know, we said a million times, abortions aren't going to stop. Legal abortions just will. And, uh, that is not good for anybody. Well, my news is uh, based on a tweet. And what it reminds me about is like when we talk about uh, private prisons, a lot of people, because of movies and TV shows, a lot of people think that the majority of people in prison are in private prisons, when in fact it's only 8% of prisoners are in private prisons. Uh, there are some states that have disproportionate uh, populations of private prisoners, but overall it is a relatively small percentage. I saw some data online that was talking about in the quote was when we say U.S. prison populations have declined, what we really mean is that California prison populations have declined since 2010 uh, with a few other states tipping in here and there. Yeah. So when you look at the when you look at the data, the prison populations in California has had the steepest decline, about 23 percent, down 40,000 people. And the next closest was New York, down roughly 8,000 people. And then Texas, down roughly 750,000 people. And then you keep going down and, you know, some states, New Hampshire, Maine, Montana, Wisconsin, Iowa, Wyoming, like they have actually increased. Arkansas has increased about 2000 since 2010. So when we talk about like the decline in the U.S. prison population, what it's actually what the data shows is that it's not like this decline is like happening evenly. It's not like it's happening consistently all across the country. And it's just a note that like there's always something behind the data. Two, that there's some states that just have a big impact on like how national data swings. And three is that like we still have a lot of work to do. That some people see that the U.S. prison, like they hear the idea that the U.S. prison population is decreasing. And they're like, oh my God, we won. And it's like, no, big win in California. Big change there. Still a lot of work to do. It's the biggest state. Uh, 
but like don't have that talking point like swing you so much to believe that like uh, that we don't have work to do or that the problem still doesn't exist because there are states where the prison population is increasing. You know, this tweet is interesting because when you look at this chart, you know, you see California really is off the charts compared to every other state in the reduction in its prison population. Uh, and that happened because of realignment, uh, which was mandated by the courts because the prisons were way overcrowded and inhumane in California. Uh, and so a lot of people were shifted from prisons to county jails. So, you know, oftentimes these statistics, you know, it looks really good for California and you see a reduction of, you know, more than 40,000 people in prison uh, since 2010. But the jail population has actually increased since then because it's shifted people from prisons to jails. And so you do see an increase of about 10,000 people in terms of the average daily population in the jails, um, which is probably an, an underestimate because, again, that's just average daily population and it shifts. There's a lot of people who go through uh, who sort of cycle through jail compared to prison. But, you know, overall, it does look like there's a significant reduction because of that decision and also because in California, citizen-initiated ballot initiatives, things like Prop 47, uh, which, you know, reclassified a number of sort of lower-level offenses to be uh, to have lesser sentences and to not result in people being put in prison. Uh, so, so there is hope around the issue of using ballot initiatives, putting things on the ballot to make sure uh, that we are able to sort of reclassify offenses, uh, reduce sentences, and get more people out of prison. What's disheartening about this is that, you know, it took a court decision uh, and a ballot initiative to achieve these types of reductions in California, uh, and that the legislature, right, the state legislature was less than uh, willing to make these changes without that kind of pressure. Think about how do we make larger reductions in the prison population, particularly in other states. Uh, I think that lesson from California should be applied to, to thinking about strategies there too. And you know what probably helped ballot initiatives like Prop 47 pass? The fact that once people who are convicted of a felony in California have completed their prison term and have completed their parole, that they are eligible to vote again. Uh, this is why continual reenfranchisement of, of people who um, have returned to full society is critically important. Electorates, just like courts, have a say in what happens in criminal justice every single year. And if the people who are most impacted by that system don't have any voice in that electorate, then we're going to continue to see the same cycles. So this is just your daily reminder to vote yes on Amendment 4 if you live in Florida and to tell everyone you know to vote yes on Amendment 4. And hopefully that will start a nationwide trend in ensuring that people can have full access to their rights. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. 
And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Dr. Mona, it is so great to finally uh, have you on the pod. I remember meeting you so long ago at the political event and I followed your work. So thank you so much for being here. And, you know, I just wanted to start with like, what made you become a doctor in in Flint, you know, like what was, what led you to this work? Sure. And when I met you, I'm like, oh my God, that's DeRay. <laughs> so it was a mutual love. Uh, so kind of what made me become a doctor? I mean, I, I hope we have more than like five hours, but you know, it really, uh, to know kind of my role in Flint and, and what I did and why I did it, it, it's important to know kind of why I went to this profession and, and who I am. So it really starts um, from my my background and my family history. So I'm an immigrant. So we came to this country when I was four, fleeing the tyrannical regime uh, of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, we came, you know, fleeing fascism, oppression, dictatorship. Uh, we came for democracy and freedom and opportunity and that American dream. And that's that's the way I see the world is with this lens that makes me every day grateful to be in this country. Also very much cognizant of what people in power um, can do to vulnerable populations. And it was it is with that lens that I pledged my career to serve um, and to serve in some of our most vulnerable communities. And, and that's really how I ended up being a pediatrician in Flint. And like, why pediatrics? You could have chosen a host of fields to work in within the medical profession. What about pediatrics was so interesting to you? So pediatrics is the most fun profession ever. So I wake up every day and I pinch myself uh, because I get to hang out with kids and I get to hang out with our Flint kids who are bright and brilliant and brave. And they're the ones that inspire me and wake me up every morning. Pediatrics, unlike other forms of medicine, has a lot of prevention built into it. And so a lot of what we do is, is already related to the field of public health, which is population level prevention. But what really drew me to pediatrics is that being an advocate is part of my job description. So even before this Flint water crisis, you know, my role, my job as a pediatrician included speaking up for kids. Uh, Kids, unfortunately, can't vote, but I think we need to work on that. They need to vote. Um, You know, they can't tell us we need better gun control or we need stronger immunizations or car seat protection. So it has always been the role of a pediatrician to be the voice and a loud voice for children. 
Now you wrote a book, What the Eyes Don't See. What what was uh, talk to me about like the impetus behind the book and like what you hoped the book did. Yeah, so you know, I wrote this book, What the Eyes Don't See, to share in a really kind of dramatic first person way the uncovering of the Flint water crisis, really as a story that's not isolated to Flint, very much um, something that is resonating with our country right now in terms of democracy issues and environmental justice issues and infrastructure and austerity issues, um, but really to share a story of what can happen when people don't accept the status quo, when people speak up, when they become activists and become disobedient and and really when we can work together to to provide hope in our community. So that's what this book is about and that's what the story of Flint is all about. So my role in Flint is was as was and continues to be very much as a pediatrician privileged to to take care of these children um, who I consider no different than my children. Um, but the my kids in Flint here, they happen to be born into a city that was almost bankrupt and that city lost democracy and became under the control of state appointed emergency management. And the emergency manager's job was one thing. It was austerity. It was no regard to the people who lived in the city. And they severed a relationship with fresh pre-treated Great Lakes water. And instead, to save money, uh, we began to draw water from the local Flint River. So the kids that I had been entrusted to care for, who no fault of their own, uh, because they were poor and because they were predominantly minority, were now drinking contaminated water. That water that we got from the Flint River was not treated properly. And for 18 months, the people of Flint were drinking lead-tainted water. Uh, and when I heard about the possibility of, of lead possibly being in the water, um, it's something that you don't mess around with. Lead is already a form of environmental racism. It disproportionately already impacts our children in Flint and Detroit and Baltimore and Chicago and Philadelphia uh, more than other kids. Um, so it, for me, it was it was the beginning of kind of a quest to find out what was going on with our children and then working day in and day out to make sure that we do not see the consequences of this crisis. You know, I've read a lot about Flint and, you know, people seem to suggest that it's like that there was something with the Flint River, also that it's the pipes. Like, can you talk about the Flint River? I just, since I had you here, I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So a lot of people think it's the Flint River's fault because Flint has this history of industrial pollution. The Flint River actually caught on fire twice in its history. But it, but yeah, back when we had um, the Safe Drinking Water Act. So uh, but it wasn't the it's been well, it's a lot cleaner these last few decades, but it wasn't the Flint River's fault. So, yeah, it was not an ideal water source. It was a lower quality water source than the Great Lakes. But the criminality of all this is that the water wasn't treated properly. It was missing an important ingredient called corrosion control, which to me as a doctor, I think of it like a medicine that you put in the water treatment. And with that medicine, it prevents the pipes from corroding and leaching out their metals. You know, when I think about it, it seems like it would have actually been cheaper on the front end to just fix the problem than have the problem become such a massive crisis in this way you got and it. like have to deal with it on the back end. You got it, DeRay. So that is one of the greatest ironies. So this was all done um, because of austerity. Uh, the switch to the Flint River and, and the emergency management, kind of the, the lack, the loss of democracy. But the greatest irony is that that necessary ingredient, that corrosion control, only would have cost 80 to to $100 a day. But that was never you know, put in. And the pump to put in that corrosion control treatment was never installed. So there really was never an intent to treat this water properly. Now, I know that there's no cure for lead, but what can we, 
what can we do? Is there anything that we can do with kids? You know, I've read that therapy can help mitigate some of the negative effects, but like, what can we do? And the answer, which we love in medicine is it depends. Um, So it's different for every child. It's different for the age of the child. It's different for the dose. Um, It's different for many reasons. So all the studies on lead have really been done at a population level. Um, So two kids can have, for example, the same level, like 50 micrograms per deciliter. One kid could end up in Harvard and one could, could need special education for the rest of their life. So there's lots of other reasons that it can impact children. There's lots of protective factors and lots of risk factors. However, the science of lead is now at a point where we now know there's no safe level because any amount of lead can impact children. And why we freak out about it so much is because it impacts the core of what it means to be you. It impacts cognition. So it literally drops IQ curves. So the IQ curve in a population is like a bell-shaped curve, and it shifts that bell-shaped curve to the left. So you have you have less gifted students and you have more kids at a population level who will need special education services. It causes behavioral problems like attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, developmental disabilities. Lead exposure at a population level has also been linked to impulse disorders and criminality. Uh, so really life-altering consequences. Um, amazing research has has brought this to life and really of centuries of knowledge. It's probably the most well-studied neurotoxins known to man. Um, the word lead actually comes from the Latin plumbum. So the elemental symbol for lead is PB, plumbum. Uh, the Romans used to make their plumbing out of lead. That's how the, the word came about. And there's actually theories that hypothesize the demise of the Romans is because they used so much lead in their plumbing. They also like put lead in food and did all this other crazy stuff. But we've known about lead's toxicity for a long time. However, the lead industry has been and continues to be very evil and put it in our paint and put it in our gasoline and put it in our plumbing to make a profit. And they also use some really, really evil tactics that blamed the victims, especially in our underserved communities. Um, For example, lead was mandated in federal housing projects to be used for their paint. And we continue to see that as as problems. So like I said earlier, it's a form of environmental injustice. Uh, So these kids who are already battling so many toxic stresses where lead is one of them. So high rates of poverty and violence and incarcerated parents and discrimination and lack of great nutrition and crumbling schools and depopulation. So you name it. Uh, Kids that are already battling all these toxicities, these same kids also have higher rates of lead exposure. And once again, not only in Flint, but all over this nation in in vulnerable communities. And what are the the effects of lead? Like, what are the things that we don't know that we sort of don't know in the public conversation? That's a great question. And that gets to the title of my book. It's called What the Eyes Don't See. Because lead in water is invisible. You don't see it. It's invisible, odorless, tasteless. But you also don't see the consequences of lead exposure. It's known as a silent pediatric epidemic. You don't see the consequences for years, if not decades, when kids have, for example, problems in school or behavior problems. And then like, oh, maybe he was exposed to lead five, six years ago. Let's do a blood test. But then it's really too late then because a blood test only has you know, captures recent exposure. So because of that, children are screened for lead, but not very well. They're screened at the ages of one and two because that's when children developmentally um, are walking and crawling and they put a lot of stuff in their mouth. That's when they're they're at risk for household lead exposure, like lead paint and lead dust. And, you know, kids love to eat this stuff, especially lead paint because it's sweet. Lead paint is sweet. That's why kids put it in their mouth. So kids, you know, and, you know, in deteriorating homes and poor 
poor neighborhoods. There's, you know, the homes haven't been kept up. But even if it, the home looks great, it could still have, for example, lead paint, lead dust, lead, lead, lead in soil, and obviously lead in water. So we screen children for lead in their blood at the ages of one and two because that's when they're at risk for this household lead exposure. But many kids are not screened. And screening for lead really is only using children as detectors of environmental contamination. And I talk a lot about this in the book. We have to really be proactive. We have to do something in the public health community called primary prevention. We need to screen children's environments before we detect it in the child, because once we detect it in a child, it is too late for that child. We need to proactively be checking their their environment, their homes before a child moves in. And really because of Flint, this is actually actually now happening in many communities where independent of a child screening, we are investigating and abating the lead in a child's environment. And is there a part of sort of the history of this crisis? Like, because lead is not only an issue in Flint, but is across the country. Are there parts of the history that we just don't know? Like, you know, I realize that I know a lot about the surface level conversation about lead, but nothing about sort of the backstory. Yeah, so I talk about this in the book. My greatest public health villain is this guy named Charles Kettering. So he's a you know from Memorial Sloan Kettering. He's a renowned General Motors engineer. Uh, here in Flint, we actually have a university named after him, Kettering University. It's an engineering school. So this guy put lead in gasoline. So you know you know now we have unleaded gasoline, which is like a misnomer. It's not like we ever had to take the lead out of gasoline. We put lead in gasoline. So in the 1920s, this guy put lead in gasoline, even though we had alternatives. Alternatives, even though we knew of the dangers it could cost to people, but they put it in because GM had a patent and they made money on it. Uh, so tetraethyl lead, lead in gasoline, was in place for decades, and it contaminated the earth, um, the lead in gasoline. And now it's in soil. So that lead in gasoline, especially on long highways, uh, especially on roads, that lead in gasoline has ended up in our soils, um, and that's where children are exposed to it. But the biggest thing is lead paint. Uh, lead dust, especially from opening, closing windows, uh, lead in soil, and then lead in our plumbing. Lead in plumbing is everywhere, too. Um, Flint is not isolated. Uh, we use lead in our service lines, which are our water lines that go from our the water main to the front of your house until 1986. And then we actually allowed lead to be in brass fixtures, so like faucets and fixtures, until 2014. It's mind-boggling because we've known about the evils of lead for so long, but the lead industry was so powerful. Is the lead industry still around? Are they still a big lobby? Like, how does that work? Not as much, but the lead litigation still exists. So there still are a lot of lawsuits against the lead industry. So there are still folks defending the lead industry. So unlike other of our societal evils like asbestos and tobacco, lead has never, the lead industry has never paid for their crimes. There's never been a successful lawsuit. There is currently one in appeal right now in California. Uh, but Rhode Island, the Attorney General for about eight years tried to um, get the lead industry to pay and, and nothing came of it. So if there's some young environmental lawyers that want to pick a fight and and you know bring in some uh, dollars to finally get lead out of environments, uh, you know, go after the lead industry. Uh, so they they they're going after their like uh, for example Sherwin Williams is named in this lawsuit. So some of the the current paint companies. So what is the solution in Flint? Is it the pipe replacement? Is it what do we do? 
Yeah. So the solution to the water issue in Flint is pipe replacement, and we're doing that. So we will be done replacing all of our lead pipes by 2020. And when Flint has done that, we'll only be the third city in the country that has replaced their lead pipes. The two other cities are Lansing, Michigan, and Madison, Wisconsin. And those other cities, it took them over a decade, and Flint is doing it in less than half its time. So that's great. The 18 months that we had of corrosive water ate up our lead pipes and they're being replaced. It takes time, but we're doing it in the fastest time it's ever been done. Because of that infrastructure work, which is kind of earth moving, you know, ground moving work, that's why people still need to take precautions and use filtered water and bottled water uh, because of that pipe replacement work. So that is the solution in regards to the water. And that's happening and it's unprecedented. And we really hope to share what we are doing here in Flint with other communities because so many more communities need to do what we're doing, invest in their infrastructure and get the lead out. But I get to spend my every day working on the solution for our children. So from the moment that we realized we had this population-wide exposure, and it's not just a lead crisis, it's a, it is a trauma. Think of it as a PTSD for the entire community. Every governmental agency that was supposed to protect these people failed. Um, and thus, you know, we have, we have so many criminal charges and investigations. Um, but that in and of itself is a trauma. And when you have those feelings of anger, you know, betrayal, guilt, um, fear, that in and of itself can lead to poor outcomes. We also had one of the largest outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease, which is a pneumonia that older people get, happened because of this water, and people died. So there's actually homicide charges against some government officials because of that. So this crisis was more than just a lead crisis. Uh, It was a democracy crisis. It was a race crisis. It was an austerity crisis, a poverty crisis, a water crisis, obviously, a public health environmental justice crisis. So from the moment that we've we recognize the the width and the breadth of this crisis and what it can do to impair children's development. We put it in the context and the science of toxic stress. And I know you're familiar with this. Toxic stress is the recognition that early adversity impacts children's development in a very graded and predictable way. Our kids in Flint were already rattled with so many toxicities. We have a 60% poverty rate for our children, 60, 60. Um, you know, no grocery stores, one of the most violent crime rates in the country, um, crumbling schools, un- you know, unemployment, disinvestment, like you name it. These are all toxicities which impacts children's development. So we, we kind of included... this crisis as an added toxicity and thus have been addressing all of these toxicities. And what is happening right now in Flint is one of a kind. And that's what we're hoping to share and export. And and that's what my book is all about. Uh, Flint does not want to be remembered for this crisis, but rather the activism, the resistance, the disobedience, and, and fundamentally the hope that we are building through these positive development promoting interventions. And are you still practicing medicine and seeing children? I know that we came to know each other because of your work around lead. I I just didn't know if you were still seeing patients regularly. Yeah, absolutely. I was in clinic last week. So it's, it is my one-on-one with the kids that, that inspire me to keep going. So like I said earlier, our Flint kids are, are amazing. They are awesome. They are beautiful and they are totally the ones leading our recovery forward. And whenever I have those interactions um, with our kids, it's, it's what keeps me going. And how does Flint's story resonate with the broader story of like where we are as a country uh, today? Like, how do you fit this in a larger narrative? 
Yeah. So, you know, DeRay, the story of Flint, uh, like I mentioned earlier, is is so relevant to what's happening today, you know, not only with, like I said, democracy and environmental justice, and uh, but it's also a story of the disrespect for science. So common sense science was denied. Facts were denied. Uh, when I presented my research, which was numbers and evidence, um, just like we are now dismissing, for example, climate change and the regulations that protect, you know, our air and our water, it was dismissed and denied. And ultimately, you know, through our persistence, stubborn and continued loudness, you know, the science ultimately spoke truth to power. So, you know, and, and, and I am working to this day with those folks who didn't believe me and who didn't believe the people of Flint because the people of Flint were saying something was wrong for about a year and a half and they were also being dismissed and denied. Uh, the moms, the activists, the pastors, the journalists, the water scientists, everybody who had raised any concerns about about this water was was essentially attacked. But I I am working with those folks. Some of the, you know, and, and like I said, there's many criminal charges that have been brought up against different cities state, federal officials, the constituency that I report to, that I advocate for is kids. So I have to work with whomever is in power, whoever controls the purse strings to make sure that that my kids have what they need to not only um, recover, but, but overcome this crisis. What were some of the things that people said when the research was first released? Uh, all, all kinds of things. So uh, when I released the research that there was, a, you know, there was an increase in the percentage with lead levels, uh, increase in the percentage of lead levels in children's blood after the water crisis, uh, multiple arms of the state not only attacked me, but attacked the science. So they said things that uh, they called me an unfortunate researcher, that I was splicing and dicing numbers, uh, that I was causing near hysteria, which is also a very sexist uh, comment. And that ultimately, you know, the state also had all these numbers. Um, and they also said that the state's numbers were not consistent with my numbers. So multiple arms of the state went into attack mode to dismiss my science and dismiss my credibility. And how did it feel during that first period, like when there was all this negative backlash? You know, after I was being attacked um, and I was I was prepared to get attacked because, like I said, everybody in the story had gotten attacked. But it is scary and, and nothing can prepare you for the onslaught of like an entire state attacking you. Um, for a moment, I actually believed them. You know, I was scared. I had a knot in my stomach and my heart rate went up and I was anxious. You know, it's just it's not something anybody can prepare you for. Uh, but ultimately, like I knew my science was right. The facts did not lie. We had double, triple checked our data. Um, but most importantly, these facts, these numbers in my research, these numbers were children. Every single number was a child, a child that I literally had taken an oath as a pediatrician to protect. So I, I quickly realized that this had nothing to do about me. And this had everything to do with these kids. Um, so we fought back. We fought back with more science um, and more facts. And ultimately, our, our science did speak truth to power. And, and the state uh, finally went back and looked at their numbers and conceded and said, yeah, you know, our numbers actually do show the same thing as your numbers. We do have a problem. But the state should have known that this was an issue, right? <laughs> 
they of course they should have known and that's you know there's been so many investigations and and they did know uh, and that's why some of the the, the charges are, are cover-up charges they had actually even looked at children's blood blood levels um, and saw an increase and, and covered it up um, they knew that there was lead in the water the EPA was telling them what they had to do and they were dismissing them so they should have known why why they didn't treat the water properly you know this is an ongoing story and and, and time will tell but many many of the investigations point to the issue of that this was a democracy issue because the city had lost democracy, was under state-controlled emergency management that contributed and, and caused this crisis, but also that this was an environmental justice issue. The race and the demographics of the population uh, allowed this to happen and allowed this to continue for as long as it did. And, you know, there were so many people who helped bring this crisis to the forefront, right? Yeah, and that is that's absolutely why I, I wrote this book because you know, like I said, it's a story of a crisis, but it's a story of activism, resistance, and it's a story of how to create hope. So when you know, when I was writing this book, I was envisioning, especially young people and students, reading this book and and being in their own community and realizing that to make a difference, they don't have to come to Flint. To make a difference, they just have to be in their own community, and they just have to open their eyes. This book, What the Eyes Don't See, is about people and places and problems everywhere that we choose not to see, not just in Flint, everywhere. But it is about the power that we all have within us to open our eyes, to open each other's eyes to injustices that are happening right outside our front doors. But it is not enough to be awake. It is important to be loud, to be stubborn, to be persistent, to be disobedient, and to also find your village. So the Flint story is very much a story of people uh, who never really worked together, who came together um, to, to expose this crisis and, and work on its recovery. So find your people, find your village. So often in these struggles, we think we are alone. We are never alone. There is people out there. Uh, so I, I think that's why this is this is a book. This is a story that is so relevant for today because there's a lot of folks who are unhappy with lots of different things. Um, but, you know, you need to, you need to not only be aware of those things, but you need to act on them. Where can listeners find the book? Sure. So um, you can find the book really anywhere, um, Amazon, your local independent bookstore, or you can go to my website, monahannahatisha.com to get the book. The book is called What the Eyes Don't See, A Story of Crisis, Resistance, and Hope. Uh, it is a fast-paced, um, you know, first-hand account of the uncovering of the Flint water crisis. But like I said, it's so much more than that. It's a memoir. So you've got a lot of kind of family history. It's an immigrant story. And hopefully it's, you know, it's this rallying cry on, on who we are and, and, and who we want to be. Uh, part of the proceeds go to our Flint Kids Fund, uh, flintkids.org, which is the tomorrow fund that we have set up for our children to make sure that we have all the interventions in the place to make sure our, our Flint kids thrive. Well, Dr. Mona, it's so awesome to have you here and we consider you a friend of the pie. Can't wait to have you back. DeRay, you're awesome. It's, a, it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you for everything that you're doing, elevating so many incredible voices and, um, and being passionate about so many important issues. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Andy. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.